Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a new day. And Lord, we relish the opportunity to look at your word. Uh, You have already shown us many times through the book of Numbers uh, what a special book this is and how it helps us to understand the gospel, how it helps us to understand all of scripture. And uh, Lord, we, we, we admit readily that we are not understanding everything about the book, but we we uh, we just thank you for it and how all of Scripture fits together. And I just pray that you would help us today to understand your feasts um, and their their purposes for us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, we're in Numbers twenty-eight and twenty-nine, and. We had talked a little bit last week at the end about big picture stuff. Um, all of numbers is supplemental, right? So uh, parallels to these, this section of scripture is in Exodus and Leviticus. So Exodus um, 29, I think it's beginning at verse 38. We'll talk some about this. And then um, Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, uh, Leviticus 23, and even earlier on in the book of Numbers, Numbers 15. uh, So 1 through 7 and then 23. So when you're trying to understand feasts and offerings, uh, it can be rather confusing, uh, but what we're looking at here in these chapters are what we'll call uh, a corporate a corporate worship, and there any person individually, if they had an individual reason whether they maybe are feeling distraught and want to go to the Lord, or maybe they're feeling very thankful and they want to go to the Lord. They had the opportunity. Individuals could do that any time. But what we're seeing in chapters 28 and 29 are corporate uh, uh, regulated uh, feasts and offerings that, that the whole people had to give, okay? Which, by the way, right off the bat, without even going into any of the details, that tells you something, right? It tells you that there is a, the, the Christian life, when God designs it in the Old Testament, there are some things that is just individual to you, right? You, you have your own walk with God. You're trying to figure out what you're doing in your walk with God. But God has established, we don't have to go exactly to these feasts, but just in a big picture way, God has established some schedule, some calendar of which he wants his people to regularly come together and gather, okay? And there's, so that's what we're looking at. Uh, Numbers 28, let's just look at verses 1 and 2. I'll start out reading and then we'll, we'll go from there. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. 
and you shall, oh, we'll just stop right there, one and two. What is the emphasis as I read those? Very clear. I even tried to emphasize it a little bit in my, uh, how I read it. Mine, and who's the my? God. Often we, we will talk about that worship is about God and not just about you. So a lot of times in your individual relationship with God, you, they're your personal concerns. You're bringing your, your concern to him. But this is God saying, I want something from you. Like I'm the one that is the focus of attention here. So um, these, are, these are offerings. So when you think of offerings... We usually think of offerings like just the, just the money you give to run the church, right? But this idea of offerings, and, and by the way, Old Testament Israel, that all their offerings provided for the priests, provided for the poor, they did all the same things that we do, but the offerings primarily are something of which God feasts upon. He partakes of them. So like he wants something from his people. So you have this... Uh, you're here, you're the worshiper, and God obviously is giving to you, right? I mean, in worship, he's coming down and ministering to you, but there's something that he also wants back, right? And he feasts upon your worship, which you shouldn't think of as just a demand, like he's just this ogre God demanding, but you should think in terms of a true relationship, relationship or fellowship, that's what I had the F there, uh, a relationship, fellowship, that there's actually a give and take between you and God. And this is something that God says that he wants from his people. Um, God desires these things, and he actually takes pleasure in them. Look at verse 2. They are my food for my food offerings, and then he says, my pleasing aroma, okay? Now, in your relationship with God, and I, I really think we struggle to believe this, that God takes pleasure in what you offer to him. Now, I know that in the gospel, we understand that the only reason he can take pleasure in anything that you offer is through Christ, Christ, in a sense, washes and cleanses and makes perfect what you offer to him or God could never be pleased with it. But the fact of the matter is, he is pleased with you when you come to him humbly in faith, offering worship. doesn't matter how perfect your worship is, but you're, you're offering to him worship of which he is pleased. And I think the, the Old Testament uh, Levitical system is beginning to make this clear to us. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. Grab that. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because you have the, you have the, uh, the big sacrificial, um, where you, you burn the lambs and different things, but then you take portions of that, and it goes into the incense of the high priest, and he takes it to the inner 
uh, altar, which is the altar of incense, and it wafts up into the presence of God. So through the mediation of the priest, which is the mediation of Christ, the worshiper is taken into the throne room of God and is uh, pleasing to God, which is it's a really important thing. We can, all, we can all say, oh, I'm just terrible in Christ's everything. He's great. I'm terrible. But you, you have to understand that the, the, uh, the whole system is built around you as a fallen human being being able to, in some sense, bring pleasure to God as you bring worship to him. It's very important. And I think most of us feel like, no, I can't, I can't do that. I can't bring God anything that would be pleasing to him, and yet it's ground into this uh, whole uh, feast. There are um, three primary feasts in the, um, that I talked to you guys about, but sometimes when you read Leviticus and Numbers, it gets a little confusing because you'll hear really like seven feasts. So you're going to have the regular Sabbath. Then you're going to have something called New Moon. Then you're going to have Unleavened Bread. which lasts for seven days. Um, Then you're going to have weeks, which is sometimes our day Pentecost, or first fruits. Um, You're going to have this, they call this a feast, even though it's just a day of trumpet. Day of Trumpets, you're going to have the Day of Atonement, which is also interesting because the Day of Atonement is itself seven days, okay, and that's a day, and then you're going to get Tabernacles or Booths, um, And we talked about like tabernacles, weeks, and unleavened bread, those three. This is connected with Passover. But you have these seven, and they call them seven feasts. And I just bring that up because you're going to get seven is a big deal um, in this order. You got seven, you got seven, right? Um, Seven's a big, big deal throughout. Also, you're going to see in the number of animals that are sacrificed. You're going to see repeated often the number of seven. Or the number 14, which is double seven, right? So seven is a big part of this. Uh, These chapters are going to flow from daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. Okay? So symbolic, number seven is very symbolic throughout all of this. Okay. I'll just tell you that because sometimes you can get confused when I say there's three primary feasts and then you start looking at it, it looks like there's seven feasts. But some of these feasts actually flow together and work together with one another. 
Okay, so we need somebody to read verses 3 through 8. Uh, Mary Dunn, would you read for me? Oh, it's probably because of bad battery. I'll just read then until we can get another battery. Okay, uh, 3 through 8. And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day, as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah, a fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hen of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offering of the morning, and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So, some of the details of this. When is this offering offered? Yes. Morning and evening. So, you have... um, Implications of this, uh, a lot of times when you, when you talk about um, like bookends, you have like A to Z uh, and basically everything in between. So this is the fact that there are daily offerings given at the temple means that the entirety of your life is, is before God in worship, right? It's, it's morning, evening, it's not just like having your devotions morning and evening. These are corporate things. These are things done at the temple, whether or not the regular people uh, are doing anything or not, right? This is just the temple worship has to have this. Every morning, every evening, they are offering a sacrifice, right? You got two male lambs, one year old without blemish, one in the morning, the other at twilight. You have a grain offering connected with it, and you have a drink offering, Uh. And what do they say about this drink offering? If anything, uh, it just says, like its drink offering. Yeah, yeah, it says it in verse 7. It's poured out, yes. What is it made up of? Strong drink. Okay, so here you go. This is primarily, these, this whole thing is about God partaking of this, right? It's him partaking of it. So why in the world does God partake of strong drink? I got to answer my question first. <laughs> he gives us offhanded answer, <laughs> and then he's going to come back with his own. I'll get to your question. Let's focus on this. Why would God want strong drink? Why does he want something that is fermented? Well, I mean, it could be. It doesn't say anything about it best, but you could assume that because you're supposed to have a lamb without offering, that, I mean, without any blemish, that the wine would be some of the best that they had. Um, good, good, good suggestion. 
Okay, so the grapes have to be crushed. I, I can imagine, like it had no water in it whatsoever. Hmm, I didn't know that. Um, What's interesting, and I don't want to go there too much right now, but think about Jesus on the cross. Early on, he will not touch the wine, will he? He says, I don't want to mess with that. At the very end, after the sacrifice is finished, he does partake of the wine. Isn't that interesting? Um, If you're an absolute teetotaler, and you think that wine is just always evil, this is a real problem. Uh, because God has a symbolic reason for wine. It's not for drunkenness. That's not the point. But there is, throughout Scripture, this thread of uh, wine and strong drink with festivity. And you wouldn't drink of it when you had somberness, when you were you know, um, in mourning to be one of the things that were different. So, you know, obviously while drunkenness is absolutely forbidden, this is not because God wants to get drunk on wine, this does have a somewhat of a symbol that God is going to have joy with his people in fellowship with them. Remember, it's their offering to him, and he is pleased with it. So, Again, I know that everything good, like we corrupt sex, like we corrupt everything impossible, we corrupt this. We make, you know, every, people can't even associate wine with anything but drunkenness and, and like carousing and party and evil and different things. But here in the sacrificial system, God actually prescribes fermented wine. And we're not saying how fermented it is, right? That's not the point. It's just that wine is a part of the joy that God receives with his people. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I think Jesus, prior to his, his death, will not partake of the wine. He actually told his disciples, I will not partake of this again until the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's referring to the wine of the Passover meal. And then after he, um, after he uh, finishes the, the, uh, the sacrificial system, he actually takes a little taste of, uh, it's kind of like um, sour wine almost, but it's very fermented. It was a cheap form of wine. And he, he just tastes that uh, before he dies. And I think it's all in anticipation of the final glorious joy that we will have with Christ. Um, <clears throat> okay. Yeah, yeah, go back to your question. Go ahead. kind of alluded to because it says uh, uh, the pressed, uh, the, the, the olives being pressed oil. And uh, I was wondering about that, and I think Clark said, you know, the crushed grapes. And Mary uh, made mention also of that factor, Christ on the cross. And is that is that also the significance of that, the pressed, you said? Well, the oil, like you would have olives, and that's how you would press out the oil. Um and typically olives, the oil is also oil of gladness, but there's like a, there's a practical sense of the oil is used just in the bread to be able to keep it to hold together, those kind of things. But I do think that there will be uh, 
symbolically, is it uh, Joshua, um, where they have the two olive branches kind of going into, I'm thinking of the, the prophetic book. Um, so I think olives and oil do have symbolism. Um, I think here they're just a part of the, the grain offering um, that they have. But I think the, when you're talking about the drink offering, it, the fact that they actually make a statement, strong drink, just singles it out a little bit more. That's why I'm bringing more of that up right now. So, but I, I think you're on the right track that oil does have symbolic value as well moving forward. So, okay. <clears throat> Nine and ten. How are we doing on the mic? Is it better? Okay, uh, Mike Starnes, would you read verses 9 and 10 for me? And on the Sabbath day, two lambs of the first year without spot and two-tenth deals of flour for a meat offering mingled with oil and the drink offering thereof. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath beside the continual burnt offering and his drink offering. Okay, so if you have morning and evening, two lambs, right? So um, at the end of a week, you're going to have 14 lambs being offered because of the daily offering. Okay, then in verse 9, you're also going to offer two lambs, right? Is that what it is? Two lambs again on the weekly. Um. And there's going to be accompanying uh, uh, drink offering and uh, grain offering as well. But so you understand that one day, so on the seventh day, you're not just going to offer four. You're going to add to it these extra two. So on this time, you're going to offer six. Does that make sense? So you're, you're, you, don't, you don't quit doing these to do these. You just you, you keep doing these, and then you've got this one, which it tells you that as you're moving along, every day, every day in some sense is holy. But then on the Sabbath, uh, the weekly, it's actually like an increased, you know, it's like it's, it's extra holy. You're doing this plus more, right, um, that's going on. Then in 11 through 15, uh, Ken Karakow, would you read 11 through 15? Here comes your mic. Okay. At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Two bulls from the herd, one ram, and seven male lambs, and a year old without blemish. Also, three-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull and two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for one lamb and a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, a third of a hen for a ram, and a quarter of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month 
throughout the months of the year. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord, it shall be offered besides the burnt offering and its drink offering. Okay, so a couple things just to see here. Now we're not only getting lambs, we're, we're adding to it bulls and rams, and then there's a goat. And then you, and it, what we have on the lambs is there's going to be seven lambs, right? So each month you're going to have seven lambs, you're going to have uh, two bulls, one ram, and one goat. So you got bulls, rams, and a goat. So you're adding those to this. So again, you can see how these are multiplying. You're still going to do the daily. You still got those going on. It's going to also fall on a Sabbath, most likely, because it's the months in sevens. And then it's going to be, you're going to have these extra things. So you're adding all these together. So you can imagine how... This is getting more and more wieldy, right? This is a big deal. You can see the amount of preparation the priests would have to do. It's kind of like, and this is a silly uh, illustration because this is a lot more, but pastors always do more work around Christmas and Easter, right? Because they're doing yeah, extra services, you have things going on. But the priests are going to be doing extra work. Um, remember, these are not offerings that individuals bring. These are like ones that are provided, as a part of the corporate worship, things going on. Uh, now that it would, in some sense, be included in what the people bring, obviously, but not like as an individual um, bringing those. I hope I have it written down here when we get to the bottom of this. So let's keep going. Um, 16 through 25, uh, let's have, Gary, you want to read? Okay, here comes the mic to you. On the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of this month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a food offering, a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old. See that they are without blemish, also their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah shall you offer for a bull and two-tenths a ram. A tenth shall you offer for each of the seven lambs. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall offer these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is the regular burnt offering. In the same way, you shall offer daily for seven days the food of a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its burnt offering, and on the seventh day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Okay, so now this is the, he's primarily talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of which Passover is a part of it, right? Passover actually kicks it off, and um, then you, you have this whole week of unleavened bread, so they're eating the whole week of unholy bread. Now, days one and seven are... Uh, holy convocations. What does that mean? What's a holy convocation? Right. This is where the people are supposed to gather. They're all supposed to come on that day. So you wouldn't be coming every day, but on these days you would come to gather. And you can think of Jesus um, coming into Jerusalem during the triumphal entry. 
lots of Jews will be coming into Jerusalem because they're, they're coming on this holy convocation. They're, they're trying to, to gather so the, the numbers of people in Jerusalem would swell way up during these, these holy convocations. Um, on days one and seven, there are going to be more offerings that are be given uh, in addition to the regular daily offerings. Again, you see connections of seven male lambs. Um, the grain offerings uh, adjust in their amounts based upon the size of the meat offering. So it's almost like, uh, this is just a, throwing it out there. If, if you're a mother and you're going to uh, uh, serve for 20 people, so you're going to use this big bull, so you're going you're gonna to have sides that are going to match the amount of the meat offering, right? You don't want to have like huge bull meat and then just a little bit of sides, right? So you're, these all fit together. So the bigger the bull, the bigger the offering sacrifice, the bigger the, uh, the grain offerings would be with that. They're in, in proportion to one another. Uh <clears throat> So, all right, let's keep going to the 26 through 31. Uh, John, would you read this up here? Upon the first day of the first fruits, you shall offer a grain offering of new grain to the Lord at your feast of weeks. You shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Two bulls from one herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old. Also, their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs with one male goat to make atonement for you. Besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering, you shall offer them and their drink offering. See that they are without blemish. So the main thing that I want you to see here is that basically these two feasts are the same um, in, in the way that the offerings and stuff. They have different purposes, obviously, but in terms of the offerings that are given, they're largely the same. Um, this is the first of weeks, first fruits. Uh, I, there are some, for those of you who are, uh, highly motivated, there are some, uh, differences between Leviticus 23 and this passage, but I'm not going to go into these right now. I don't want to, uh, confuse you, but if you're really interested and want to talk about those, we could do that later. Let's keep going. Um, so now we're on chapter 29. Uh, let's see, Debbie, would you like to read? One through six. Just so you understand, we're now moving to this third one. It will be, pay attention to what month it will be. Go ahead. On the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do, not, do no regular work. It is a day for you to sound the trumpets as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Prepare a burnt of wait, a burnt offering of one young bull, one ram, and seven male lambs a year old, all without defect. With the bull prepared, prepare a grain of a grain offering of three tenths of an even and fine 
<coughs> flour mixed with oil, with the ram two tenths, and with each of the seven lambs one tenth, include one male goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. These are in addition to the monthly and daily burnt offerings with <coughs> their grain offerings and drink offerings as specified. They are offerings made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma. Okay. So now we're in which month? Seventh month. This is the most holy month of the calendar for the Jews. Well, you see seven all over the place, right? Um, this, this day, uh, you're going to have, at the very beginning of it, verse 1, you're going to blow the trumpets. And so the day of trumpets, right? Uh, the day of atonement. Uh, atonement, trumpets, announcing this awesome day of the, day of the Lord is going on here. And there are holy convocations. And every time you have a holy convocation, there is no ordinary work. I don't know if you're familiar in the New Testament, there's a place where, where Paul is like saying, uh, like we're doing away with Sabbaths. And, and there's just like this, this debate over, does that mean the weekly Sabbath? Like we just, uh, the fourth commandment has no validity to us. I take that as, there, if you looked at the Jewish calendar, there are a ton of Sabbaths. There are new moon Sabbaths, there are yearly Sabbaths, there are all these times where you were told not to do any work uh, in order so that you could worship, not necessarily getting away the fourth commandment, the weekly Sabbath. So uh, when they talk about Sabbaths in the plurality, you can see, based on this yearly calendar, that there were not just one Sabbath every week, there were lots of others that were also included into this uh, idea of Sabbath. The trumpets are blowing on this day. Uh, why do you think that they're going to blow the trumpets before this day of atonement? What do trumpets do? Call the people to, together, they do, but they don't have trumpets on the other ones. I agree with you, but I'm just adding an element to this. There's, why on this day? Absolutely. What do trumpets do? So you can, once you start understanding your Old Testament, you understand the purpose of trumpets, you get the revelation and they have like trumpets, you're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. What do the trumpets do here? They warn, that's a big part in Revelation. They announce the day of the Lord. This is the final day of judgment, which would be a time of warning, but it would also be a time of joy for those who have had their sins atoned for. This is a good time, right? So, so they're announcing something, this wondrous day of the Lord. Remember how I showed you last week, there are three primary feasts. The, this takes place during the cross. This takes place at Pentecost. This one hasn't occurred yet because it is the final judgment and God setting all things straight. So it would make sense that the culmination of all things would be in the seventh month. Um, they would have all these offerings going on. Remember, you don't stop your weekly or your monthly or your daily ones when you get to the yearly. So at this point, you're, there's a lot of sacrifices going on at this point. At this one, in addition to some of the offerings, uh, what did I, we stopped at six. Let's do seven through 11. Uh, Bill, do you want to read? No, you don't have to? 
Uh, it would be uh, 29, 7 through 11. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and afflict yourself. You shall do no work, but you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old. See that they are without blemish, and their grain offerings shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering. Besides the sin offering of atonement and the regular burnt offering, it's grain offering and their drink offering. Thank you. So what do you see in uh, verse 7 for the people? What are they supposed to do? Yeah, afflict your soul, which this would be, um, you know, you're, you're, it's not like self-flagellation, but you are, you are thinking of your sin, you are wanting to repent, you are preparing yourself for that day that's coming, which would be the day of judgment. Now think of John the Baptist coming uh, in, you know, he's there, he's telling the people, the day of the Lord is coming, and you better afflict yourselves and repent so you're ready for the day of the Lord. So his whole ministry fits into what's going on in the yearly feasting. It would make perfect sense. Now, John the Baptist, he thinks that with this day of the Lord, he looks at it as the end. Like we look at the second coming of Christ, he's looking at Christ's coming now because the, what we call the first and second comings that are separated by a large amount of time, he would have used them together. So here's John the Baptist. He has repented. He's, he has called people to repentance, and he sees Jesus being exalted, and he starts thinking, well, when, is we, when are we going to usher in the kingdom? And so what, hap- what does John do when he gets thrown into prison? He's like, are you the one? Because of the day of the Lord, this should be it. And here I am in prison. And what does Jesus tell him? Look at, look at all the things I've done. I am the one. It's just not quite the way you thought right now. Because his death and resurrection are going to like completely change everything because they looked at it as an earthly kingdom of which they would overthrow the Romans. And here's the, here's the one. And Jesus says, no, no, no. And well, what does he say to Pilate? If this, my kingdom is not of this world, if it were, my angels would come down, I would wipe you out, and we would set up our kingdom. Instead, I'm going to the cross because my kingdom is after the death, after the resurrection, new heavens, new earth. So, um, so anyway, all this is built into the, the yearly sacrificial system. So you can understand why once... So in all these, you are killing lambs, killing lambs, killing bulls, killing boat. Like you're killing, 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 killing. And the book of Hebrews tells us the reason why you have to keep killing, killing, killing is because none of these are actually doing the job. Right? So then he says after his one sacrifice, sacrifices are done. 
why we don't have to do these anymore. Because Christ's one sacrifice is enough. It's finally satisfied. Can you see how cumbersome, how oh, every year, every month, every week, every day, you're killing animals and you're just killing. Just think of the blood. You know, th- go ahead, Ken. Wasn't the continued sacrifice also representative of God's long-suffering because it turned aside his wrath and anger until Christ came for the final sure. sacrifice, right? Yeah, so in, prior to, this is a, a very important, uh, we'll call it redemptive historical understanding. So, So prior to the coming of Christ, the sacrifices actually anticipate the true sacrifice. They actually, uh, you're, you're going to the temple, you're, you're engaging in the sacrifices, um, are all done in faith, trusting that, that God would provide the complete sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. Now, what happens once the perfect has been provided? What happens if you still want to do the sacrifices? What are you saying then? Yeah, this, I, this hasn't been enough. So what Paul packed here was a means of faith, trusting in the sacrifices, now is a denial of the perfect sacrifice, and this becomes anathema. In fact, Paul connects it to circumcision, and he basically says, if you want to get circumcised, you might as well do the whole thing, follow it all, you might as well just do it all because you are denying the true sacrifice in Christ. To him, it's a gospel thing, which is why Paul in Galatians can be so anathema on it, but then later on, he can circumcise Timothy because it's there, it's just a practical thing, it has nothing to do with the gospel. It's just uh, a practical thing. We don't want to offend Jews while we're ministering to them. And so he's okay with it that way. But if you start thinking that circumcision is going back to the Old Testament and it's a denial of the perfect sacrifice in Christ, that is an anathema. He hates it. So, which in our practical thing, we're not going back to sacrifices. But if you start going to yourself, I, I trust in Jesus, but I've got to do all these things in order to make myself right with God. You're doing the same thing, right? You're adding works to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. You don't add anything human to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. You can't add anything to that. Uh, yeah. Yep. How does the faithful Jew um, get around the need for sacrifices now? Well, the, how does the, that? Number one, the faithful Jew needs a temple. Is that what you're getting at? They don't have a temple, so they can't even do the sacrifice. So, so at their uh, synagogues now, right? Uh-huh. At the synagogues then they don't sacrifice there. No sacrifices. In fact, they they're, if that. you're a true Zionist, you're waiting 
for the temple to be rebuilt so that you can continue to reinstitute the sacrifices. And the sacrifices, um, that goes together. Absolutely. Without the temple, there are no sacrifices. Correct. Without a temple, there are no sacrifices. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Yep. You can't just do this wherever you want. So a Jews would be, they be, might keep the Passover elements of like the, uh, well, it's even, even now the Passover elements are very different because you would have normally during Jesus' day, you would have sacrificed the animal at the temple and then brought it back to your Passover feast. Um, I, I don't know exactly how Jews, I mean, I know they have to kill it, but I don't think it's killed by a priest today. Probably someone who's kosher does it. Um, but, you know, they would basically just say, we're doing the best we can without a temple. And we're waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. <clears throat> All right, let's keep going. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some of these just for sake of time. So 29, beginning in verse 17. Okay. So remember, this is this final, this final feast. And you can imagine how much bigger this feast is than all the rest of them. So not just like beginning and end, they have an offering for every day. So day two, uh, you, we just looked at day one, 12 through 16, right? Now we're looking at day two. On the second day, 12 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old without blemish, with a grain offering, drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams and the lambs, in the prescribed quantities, also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offerings and its grain offerings and their drink offerings. The only difference between this one and the one before is that there are only 12 bulls, right? And the previous one, there were 13. Then you keep going, day three, on the third day, 11 bulls. And for the sake of time, you go through the exact same theme again, same quantities, everything else. Then down in verse 23, on day four, there are 10 bulls. Same thing again, all the way through. By this time, you're like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. Then you go down to day 26, or verse 26, nine bulls. This is like the 12 days of Christmas, right? And then down in verse 29, eight bulls. And then in verse 32, seven bulls. And in verse uh, 35, uh, uh, let's see here. It's a little bit longer. I'm going to read this one. Uh, 35, on the eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly. You should not do any work. Remember the eighth day? Why would the eighth day be important? Christ's resurrection, right? It's the, it's the day after the seventh day Sabbath. So on the eighth day, you shall do no work. It's, uh, you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, one bull, seven, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish, and the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bull and the ram, for the ram and the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, it's grain offerings, drink offerings. These are, uh, you know, I'm just, just going on and on. So Moses told the people of Israel everything just as the Lord had commanded. So there's differences on this eighth day. You shall have a solemn assembly. You shall not do any work. We're back down to a reduced burnt offering. One bull, one ram, seven male lambs. Um, so uh, then, uh, let's see here. When it talks about a sin offering, 
A sin offering is the same thing as a peace offering. In other words, it atones for sin and actually brings about peace between God and you. Uh, so what do, you, what do you take from all this? This final feast is the feast of the year, right? I mean, just by the sheer amount of work and effort that goes into this. It is, it is clear that God wants his people to think about this feast as the pinnacle of everything. So what does that tell you? What's the pinnacle of the year for anyone? What's that? Well, we would say Easter, but Easter's actually connected to the Passover, right? So, uh, so what, that's what we do as, as Christians, but really, the biggest time of year, which we don't really even have a day to celebrate this, well, that's again the coming. What, this is the second coming of the Lord. We don't even have a feast for this day. The return of Christ. And what they would do every year, the Feast of Booths, they would all get together and be you know, living in tents and they would be having all these offerings and it would be their biggest festivity and party of the year. Yes, they would start it with a day of, of like uh, humbling and sacrifice and stuff, but then it would be this great feast that they would have for all week long. There's actually, Olin Coleman, you have this uh, Make Us Glad, that book, well, there's a church somewhere down in South Carolina, I think. I don't know if they still do this or not. But for years, they would have, every year, a Feast of Booths. And they'd actually put up all these tents in the backyard, and they would feast all week long because they were in anticipation of the coming of the Lord. Every year they would do this. That's kind of a cool thought, to do this. Offerings. Uh, there was always only one goat, and he had no attendant grain or wine offerings. That, to me, that's very significant. Well, I know that I know that the goat was usually the one, uh, even in the, you know, that's usually the one of like sacrificed outside of the outside of uh, the temple. But I don't think this one was like that. Maybe it's reminiscent of that. Uh, in and I think Exodus or Leviticus, Leviticus, you'd have two. One would be like the scapegoat and the other would be the one that would be sacrificed uh, inside the temple. So maybe this is this one. The one that's sacrificed outside the temple would connect to Christ in his one death outside of Jerusalem. That's why he's not sacrificed inside of Jerusalem, because he's not just a regular burnt offering. He is like being cut off so that the rest of God's people could be together. But um, I don't know that this is a scapegoat. I think this is maybe connected to that scapegoat in some way. So... Um, yes to do this seems like you would need more than the regular amounts wouldn't you so let me let me tell you just every year in the future the priest will have to sacrifice 113 bulls 32 rams 1086 lambs and offer more than a ton of flour and a thousand bottles of oil and wine. A thousand and eighty-six lambs, uh, thirty-two rams, hundred and thirteen bulls. It doesn't mention the goats here, so I don't know. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say, yeah, no, it doesn't come up to twelve thousand. No, but it's just a lot. <laughs> um, now look at listen. Listen to this in Colossians. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See how clear that is? If you understand all this stuff that's happening, all that they had to do, and then you say, oh, Christ fulfilled it all. And we know that, but until you actually get back and think about what life would have been like for these guys to do this every year, and then go, oh, Christ did it all? One sacrifice? Wow. Peace. Ah. Um, Philippians 3. Here's Paul. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish. He's not really talking about his sin there. He's talking about all the things that he had as a Jew that he could do, right? Uh, He's a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the law. He's going to the temple. All these things. He says, I count them all rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's not just moral law, I think it does include moral law, but it's ceremonial law, right? All the sacrifices, that is not where he finds his, his acceptance with God. But that which comes through faith in Christ. Brad, this is one of the reasons why we don't like what Catholics do because they, they like reinstitute all these ceremonies, all the come into the mass, do all these things because that's what makes you right with God instead of just Christ, right? That's, the, that's our problem. Now, Catholics would sometimes try to argue with us and say, no, we really are just focusing on Christ. But they're, the reformers all said they are muddying the water. Instead of a clear statement, Christ is satisfied at all. Everything else is rubbish. They keep adding these other things to it. Uh, go. Uh, 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs. Okay. Uh, that comes from Gordon Wenham. I'm trusting him. He's a very good commentator on this. So, uh, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. See how Christ's righteousness and the resurrection are connected and may share in, with his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may t- attain the resurrection of the dead. Just as the yearly sacrifices moved you to this final day when everything would be made right, so we look at the resurrection. And this is why we would say, even though we do celebrate Easter and we do celebrate uh, Christmas, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. Every time we come on a Sunday, we are, we are, that's why we do it on the first day of the week rather than on the seventh day of the week because the resurrection is everything to us. New heavens, new earth. Uh, Hebrews 4, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We actually purposely choose not to work, not just on Sundays, but we, it's a declaration. We are no longer working for our salvation. Uh, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In other words, do not leave Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. You leave Christ, you leave your rest. There's no other hope. 
The only hope you have is Christ. So we don't ever want to go back. We're never going back. We got Christ. That's all we want. He is enough. No matter how um, uh, it doesn't, how much it doesn't feel like that in your daily walk, you're still struggling with anxiety. You're struggling with depression. You're struggling with sin. You're struggling with all these things. It doesn't matter. Christ is your rest. Keep clinging to him. He's everything for you. All right, we've got a couple minutes. Do you have questions or comments? No idea, but it would take a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because we don't even think about this right now. Um, when I was in Turkey, of course, they have their month of Ramadan, and, and they do it differently. But uh, we were not there during the month of Ramadan, but they have, like, they were explaining it to us. There are, it's like blood in the streets. Like, there's just sacrifices everywhere. And I, and I know that's not the way Israel will do it, but you can imagine going to the temple. You probably could smell the temple from miles away during this time. It's a butcher shop. You know, it was, it was pretty bloody. That's why we don't have circumcision, but we have baptism, non-bloody right? That's why our communion meal is not bloody. It's just bread and wine. There's no sacrifice there. So everything has changed because of what Christ has done. Other questions or comments? Yes. Right. You would have to, you'd have to have this, you'd have to have a pretty healthy supporting land to be able to do this. Yep. Yes, they were. Yep. In fact, um, they had made some adjustments, like if you were bringing up your personal sacrifices and you couldn't bring your own lamb, you could bring some money and you could buy stuff. This is why Jesus says, you money changers, you're like turning my temple into a, you know, yeah. So he gets mad at them because they're, they're try, trying to make a profit on worship. But, but yeah, they were doing all this. Yep. And that's why the Pharisees were like, oh man, we can't, we can't touch Jesus. We can't actually kill him because we need to be clean. So here they are doing the most atrocious act in all of history, and they're worried about being clean, you know. Uh, so, yeah, all that was happening. Good question. If Israel ever does resurrect the temple and start the sacrificial system again, that would be the ultimate. Do you think God just... would be happy with that? No, I can't. <laughs> He'd be like, you're not, de- what, did my son do nothing? Right? Go ahead, Bill. The end of Passover has always ended with the phrase, next year in Jerusalem. Mm, Very good. That is a Zionist. um, So with the formation of the state of of Israel in 1947, um, it is, uh, even before that, but um, be, partly because of that, it has awakened a certain Zionist mentality that with Israel coming back, uh, Israel being established as a state, there's then this hope that the temple would be rebuilt, that they would re- go back and reinstitute the sacrifices. This is why there's such a difference between a Messianic Jew and a Zionist. 
Messianic Jew is someone who believes in Christ alone. They may keep some of like things like Passover, but they're not trying to reinstitute the Old Testament sacrifices. They're, they're trusting in Christ. But a Zionist is really trying to, they would like to get the, the, the Arabs out of the Temple Mount so they could rebuild the Temple. That's a big part of this. They're very much connected. Yes. Yep. Yep. So. Related to, they view that from Christ and what it represents. Uh, right. Right. The, the Seder is a whole different. Yeah. That's you're absolutely right. View of the Seder. So one one last thing that I would say is that even though we should never reinstitute a liturgical system that is like this, like reinstitution of the Old Testament, we should not do that, I, I don't think. But I do applaud this one church that, that celebrated in a special way the second coming in the, the boost because, because I think that we as people, if nothing else, this just as people, you need to have, you live your daily life, and then you need something to kind of pull you out of that daily life and just get you back into reality. And I think these yearly feasts really help the people of God to say, yeah, I'm just not just doing the regular thing, you know. So, like, use these ebbs and flows that we see in the Old Testament. I think we should use them here. This is why I think we should have a weekly worship because there's a weekly Sabbath that you're striving to enter that rest. There's a way of pulling yourself out of your daily life so that you celebrate, you don't do any work and you have time for worship so that you can begin contemplating the things that God wants you to contemplate about. And then I don't think it's wrong on a yearly basis to have certain seasons of which you think more about God's great works of redemption. Incarnation, uh, the... Uh, death of Christ, and even the second coming of Christ, or the pouring out of the Spirit. Those are good things to think about in your relationship with God. So let me close. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness to us and giving us all these sacrifices. Um, you didn't just bring your son into the world, but you uh, prepared your people to see what an awesome thing it was to bring Christ into the world. And I thank you for Jesus. I pray that in my own life, I would not uh, try to lift up what I'm doing more so than I lift up what Christ has done. And I, I just thank you that you are perfect in your sacrifice and we have full atonement for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.